We've been working through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And uh, today we've worked our way all the way through the first 10 chapters. And today we start in Acts chapter 11. So if you found where Acts is in your Bible, it's on page 1438 in my Bible. uh, Turn to Acts chapter 11. And and that's where we're going to be here today. Now, how many of you have gotten to the spot where you're now comfortable that it's 2024? Anybody? You know, we don't, we used to have to write a lot of things with like pen and paper. I don't think we do a whole lot of that anymore. I remember when I was a kid in elementary school, like you'd always have to write your name at the top. And once you learned cursive, that's, some, that's a thing for the young kids that don't learn cursive anymore. We used to write, once you'd learn cursive, you had to write your name in cursive and then you put the date. And I remember when you'd start a new year, you'd come back after Christmas I'd keep, I'd always have to flip the pencil and erase the date because I'd always keep putting the year before, right? It was always like 2023, 23. No, it's 2024. But when you think about that date, 2024, it seems pretty modern, right? 2024. Like for me, that's like almost space age. When I was a little kid, even thinking about the year 2000 seemed far off. That was 24 years ago, quarter of a century practically. And, and when you think about 2024, that seemed like modern. We don't live back in the 1900s. Are you kidding? Like, we're, we're here. We're current. We're sophisticated. We're civilized. Or are we? When you start looking actually around at the world around us, you're kind of like, wow, this is just kind of the same old, same old. We're not flying around yet in our own little personal cars, and we don't have... Well, we've got a lot of robots that are working in life. Um, there's some things that are happening. If you went back to the 1960s, and uh, there was a, a, an old cartoon called The Jetsons. It was like, that's even before my time, guys, but I saw some of them. Um, and it was like this space-aged family, right, that had a robot dog and all this stuff. And it was like, wow, what would that be like in the future? A lot of those things are actually the way it is now. But still, in all of our modernity and all of our up-to-date technology and all of that, there are certain things that still happen that are happening in our world today that you're just like, how? How does this happen? One of the things that we are certainly modern with now is we can get information, global information, instantaneously. And what is some of that information telling us? Oh, this world is broken. There's a lot of strife and a lot of struggle There's war, and there's oppression, and there's exploitation, and there's bad stuff that happen in this modern world. It's the sort of thing where you're like, gosh, guys, can't we all just get along? (laughs) But it's happening. As long as there is sin in the world, people will be in conflict. It's just the way it is. We, we like to have this ideal um, picture in our mind of this is how things will be. Everybody will get along. Everybody will have enough. We'll all share and be happy in, in this, you know, perfect utopia. It's not going to happen on this earth. As long as there's sin in this world, there's going to be all the things that come along with it. Sadly, it's the way it is. But what about in the church? What about among the body of believers of Christians. Because here's the thing. The whole broken system that we're talking about, that wasn't God's plan for his creation. That wasn't the plan for earth. It wasn't planned for the, the world to, to have wars and conflicts and all of that. It's not how it's supposed to be. 
And God's plan for the church is that we would be representing this other kingdom, this coming kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. Now, admittedly, we know this. We are all imperfect people, even the best of us as Christians. So we don't have, again, this ideal understanding that, oh, Christians are perfect and they've got it all figured out. No, that's not true. But God's plan for us is that we would be a people uh, 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 that is united, a people that are together, because God has a different vision for his children than what we experience here on earth. A, A kingdom on earth that is in harmony with one another. Jesus said this in Mark chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. It should be on the screen for you. He said, if a kingdom, and he's talking about even the kingdom that is here on earth, but the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of heaven invading earth. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. That's not what he wants among his people. That's not what he wants in the church. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So what happens, though, in a church, in a church community, in the church at large, what happens when opinions collide among believers? What happens when people have differing viewpoints on things, even within the church? What do you see if you, I don't know if you pay attention to the news. I don't even know if I recommend it. <laughs> but some of the things that you see in the news right now is you'll, you'll hear these, these headlines that come across about these churches and denominations that are dissolving left and right. And, and it just, it's kind of going around almost every denomination you've ever heard of. They're split over this, or that church is leaving this denomination because of this, and that one's going from here, and this person's being removed because they didn't agree with that. There's all this happening all over the place. We see church people attacking each other, maligning other believers. It's, it happens not just when people are talking about that. It happens from the, the platforms. You've got pastors that are attacking other pastors and other organizations and congregations. But what the Bible teaches us is that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It doesn't belong in the church. It's not supposed to be there. However, what we also see as we go through the Bible is we find out that this isn't a new problem. People not getting along with other people, that's not just a modern issue, guys. The the fact that we have wars breaking out and we have all these kinds of things happening on this earth, this is not new. This is the way it has always been. People, even Christians, have always struggled to be united. And today, we're going to look at a time where the church had to wrestle with different viewpoints. And we're going to look at how they handled it and what the outcome was from that. And my prayer for us today, as we get into this, um, because I realize it's a little geeky (laughs) to some degree, when you're talking about the church as a whole, sometimes people come to church and they're just like, what do I need for me right now? And if you're like, hey, I don't care if the church gets along or not, this might bother you, might not be the the message for you. But I think you can learn something from it. Um, Because my prayer for us is that we would learn these things and be able to apply it, the same practices, when we're confronted with issues that threaten to impact our own unity. Um, 
now I will say this, just to, to cut it off early. You might be saying, oh no, what's going on? Why is he talking about this? Is there some church split that's about to happen here? Or is people not getting along? No, that's not our problem. Um, in fact, I would even take a second to kind of pat you on the back and say, guys, as a church community, we've done really well, praise the Lord. People have ch chosen to get along and to work through issues as a church. And I feel like we're a very united church. And we really do love each other and we do get along. And that's wonderful. That's by the grace of God. But things like this, learning about unity and unity in the church, these are the lessons you want to learn when you don't have the problem yet. <laughs> because once you have the problem, it's too late most of the time. All right? The reason we're talking about this here today is because this is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 11. All right? So don't, don't freak out. Everything's okay. Um, now, I, I, I also know that we're not perfect. And, and even when I, um, you know, commend you on how well you get along, I know that there's, other, there's issues and there's times where things don't work out great. Um, nobody's perfect. I, I know how that works. But this is where we find ourselves in Acts. All right? So in Acts chapter 11... That was kind of a long intro, but here we go. We've got to get into this. We've got to set it up. Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now that ties back into the story that we had last week. If you weren't here, don't worry about it because Peter's about to tell that whole story again of what we learned last week, all right? And here's what happens in verse 2. It says, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcision party, that's the, the Jewish uh, people, criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay, so we've got to stop here. As we looked, we kind of went in deep with this last week. Um, basically, what they're saying is, you as a Jew went and ate with this other people group, the Gentiles, and that's not okay. By our laws, by our religion, by our faith, these two groups had nothing to do with each other. And what, we, what happened was Peter went and interacted with so much that he ate with them. And that was like a close thing. It's like you only eat with people you really know and, and people that you are, are, are one with, all right? And so that's what they're offended about. And that's what they're saying. They're like, how have you done this? We are so offended by the fact that you went to the Gentiles and had a meal with them. You, you connected with them. You interacted with them. This was incredibly countercultural to the Jews. So it's not a surprise that these Jewish believers were offended because they've been striving their whole lives to live um, in a holy way, which was based on keeping the law. Honestly, they thought Peter had just lost it. Like, you're, you're nuts. They're like, tell us this isn't true, Peter, because what we heard was that you went and hung out with these Gentiles. Not only that you hung out with them, that you went into their house, that you stayed with them, that you ate a meal with them. This is not okay. They thought he'd lost it. And I also want you to notice, it wasn't just a couple people at the church in Jerusalem. It even tells us the other apostles are included in this, right there in verse 1. Now the apostles and all the brothers that were there. Right? This was a major offense to the Jews. And here's how it's taken care of. In verse 4, it says, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. 
And here he's going to go recount everything that we saw last week. So if you weren't here, you're about to hear it. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And as we talked about last week, these were all unclean animals for the Jews. They had this whole list of animals that they could eat and list of animals that they couldn't eat. And essentially, everything that was in the sheet was stuff that he wasn't allowed to eat. All right? And in verse 7, it says, And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers, so other Jewish guys who had been with him there in Joppa, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. Now it doesn't tell us how long they fell silent, but I've got a feeling it was a little bit. There was some time here for these guys to process all they just heard. They're thinking through this. They're trying to understand this. They're trying to get their brain around it. And then it says, And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. All right. Only Peter received the vision part of this. What we've got here is we've got two groups of people that are at extreme odds in the way they're seeing the world. You've got this group of Jewish believers that have received the message from Jesus. They've received the Holy Spirit. They've begun ministering and preaching the gospel to other Jews. They have seen God do miracles among them. They've seen God at work. They've seen people be saved. They're seeing a church that started with just 120 people, a room of believers, expand throughout this entire city of Jerusalem, now spreading into the regions around. They've covered the rest of Judah, and now they're into Samaria, and now they're going to other places. They're seeing God at work. They know God is with them. But this is actually a really big difference. Moving into the Gentile world, that's changing everything for them. So for them to hear this and to process this, this is, a, this is a major thing going on. But only Peter saw the vision. 
Some of them might have been thinking, well, if I had seen a vision, then maybe I could buy this. But I don't know. But once they learned the rest of the story, the backstory, they yielded to what God was doing. Last week, we talked, the, the message was entitled, Embracing Change. And we talked about how we have to embrace change that God wants to do in our lives. This is the same thing now that the rest of the church had to deal with. They were confronted with this new truth about what God was doing in the world, and they had to decide if they were going to go with it or they were going to reject it. And their willingness to change, it tells us there, brought glory to God. They glorified God, it said there, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you had asked any of those guys the day before and, and you were, a, you know, having a conversation with one of them and you were a Jew like them and, and you said, hey, do you think, you think God could save the Gentiles? They'd be like, absolutely not. There's no way. It is, the salvation is for the Jews, from the Jews. It's always going to be only for the Jews. But now a major change has happened. And I believe that this was a really critical moment in the early church. All right? That's why I'm giving so much attention to this. Because there was a real possibility for division at that moment. Major division. The other apostles and the leaders of that church could have stuck to their traditions. They could have split the church right here into Jewish and Gentile groups. They could have basically told Peter, look, you're out, buddy. We don't know what you're talking about. You're seeing angels or whatever, but you take your sheet and go. We're not going to deal with this. Like, that, you're, you're, you're out of here. They could have claimed, well, we're the first church of Jerusalem, and God's been with us all to this point, and we're going to keep on going in this way. Right? They had the authority to plow ahead in their own path. But if they had, they would have injured God's church and weakened what God had begun. Now, as we go on in Acts, uh, we'll see another tension point in chapter 15, but not today. But beautifully, the first generation of the church, and it's pretty much only the first generation of the church, stayed united. It stayed in unity. As history would go on, if you know much about church history and, and the rest of what's happened between the first century and today, uh, we've seen countless splits. Two major splits in the church and all sorts of small ones. The, the, two, the two biggest splits of the church and church history for those of you who think about this stuff, the first one was the East-West Schism of 1054, which split the Eastern Orthodox Church from the Roman Catholic Church. All right, that was 1054. And both sides excommunicated the other side. And that excommunication actually lasted for over 900 years until 1965, <laughs> when finally uh, the, the, the Pope and the bishop got together and said, okay, We'll, we'll agree not to excommunicate each other. Like, maybe you're Christians too. <laughs> um, right, that was a big one. The second biggest one would be the Protestant Reformation, the stream that we're a part of, which happened in 1517. That's when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, basically said, look, the Catholic Church needs to reform itself, and here's my 95 points <laughs> that it needs revision on. And... Martin Luther, even though in the beginning he had no plans of leaving the Roman Catholic Church, his plan was, let's just reform this thing. And ultimately, he got kicked out 
and with him went lots of others, all right? So those are two of the big ones, but then there's all kinds of these other little denominations. Have you ever wondered why you drive around, you're like, what's this church? Why is this the Baptist church of that? And why is this the Methodist church of that or the Presbyterian church? How does this all work? They're little divisions. Usually it's over small things. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger things, but mostly it's people having a hard time getting along with other people and trying to figure out, well, I really think it's this way. I really think it's this way. I don't even think we should worship together. You go that way, I'll go this way. All right, that's, what, that's what's happened. But the goal has always been a unified Christian church. This might surprise some of you, but I don't think there's going to be denominational neighborhoods in heaven. Right? Oh, the Baptists live over there. The Catholics live over here. The, right? I don't think that's the way it's going to be. It's not going to happen that way. There have been and will always be faithful believers in all types of Christian churches. Okay? Now, I wish that community wasn't so easily fractured, but it just is. It's fragile. Again, this goes back to the sin issue of of humanity, right? It is. It's hard to get a group to agree on, on much of anything because people are so different. But the Bible, and this is what I want you to get today, the Bible encourages us repeatedly to aim for unity. Aim for unity. Aim for unity. It describes the church as the body of Christ. You've heard that here before many times. And and who is the head of the body of Christ? Jesus. He's not the, the, the head of multiple bodies. That'd be weird. And there's not multiple heads. There's one head, one body. That is the, the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Romans 12.5 says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Just as we want our physical body to stay in one piece, right? We want that. Most of the time, we want our body to stay together. Just in that same way, uh, that's the way the church is supposed to be. The church isn't supposed to have amputated limbs. It's not supposed to be fractured in pieces. It's supposed to be one healthy, united body. And, and it's not that, and, and sometimes people mistake the, the unity of the church with conformity. All right? 
And conformity is different. That's what cults are usually like, where everybody's dressing the same way and saying the same things and doing the same things and not doing the same things. And it gets very homogenous. It's very the same, right? That's not what we're aiming for. It's not conforming to each other, but what we're unified around is Jesus. Jesus is the central piece. Jesus is the one that unites all these different people and different ideas and different backgrounds, different races, different ideas, different political parties, all these things united under Jesus. And in Acts 11, notice that Peter's argument isn't what we sometimes hear in churches today. He doesn't say to them, well, guys, I know you don't like that I did what I did, but culture's changing. You just got to go along with what's happening. You're just not being progressive enough. I just, I see that there's potential out here, so come on. This is what needs to happen. No, he doesn't say anything like that. It's not that. What is it? It's a simple description of, hey, this is what I saw God do. This is what God spoke to me. And then this is what happened. And here's these other six guys that were with me that witnessed the same thing. God moved in a way that was beyond us. God sent the Holy Spirit to anoint these guys after he had just prepped us for this. It wasn't that I'm just off trying to do my own thing or make everybody get along. It's this is what God did. And that's, that's all he does. He presents that to them. He, he shows them, hey, this is what happened. And just like Peter, these Jewish leaders, they weren't ready to give up their traditions. Remember, it took three times for that sheet to come up and back down. And every time, Peter's like, no, I would, I, I, there's no way I'm going to eat that stuff. Are you kidding? That's not what I am. That's not what I'm all about. But what does it finally sink into Peter as he's perplexed? Last week we saw he's perplexed about what this meant. And he's walking on his way to Caesarea for two days trying to figure it out and realizing this is what God means by this. I have to change the way I've been doing things. And it's the same way here with these leaders. They refused to oppose the work of God. It was different than anything they'd ever known. It was a whole new way of viewing the world. It was hard, but they chose Jesus. Ephesians 4, 1-6 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And, and my heart for South Point as our church, if you don't hear this already, is that we would remain a unified, united church. Not around uh, the elders or the leaders or the pastor. Not even around the ministries we do. or not, not even around the community that we have built. But that we would be united around our love and devotion for Jesus. There's a difference. Uh, you know, um, when I was growing up, one of the things that was very interesting, and I don't know when this all started. I was a little kid. It was probably the 80s, 1980s or 90s. They had this thing in, in a lot of churches, 
um, Protestant churches um, that are sometimes referred to as the worship wars. Anybody ever heard of the worship wars before? Yeah. There's only a few of us, all right? Um, the worship wars were basically this. It was you had, you had an older generation, mostly, that had been raised with the old traditional hymns, is what they called them, all right? And they would point back to the scripture and say, see, Paul writes here that we're to sing hymns. Well, guess what? We don't have any of the hymns that Paul wrote or Paul sang. But what we liked to do in the 1980s was say all those songs that were written in the 1600s, 1700s, and early 1800s, those are the hymns, all right? And those are the only holy songs that could be sung in church. Well, then you had a whole new generation of people that were coming up with those God-forsaken guitars and drums, and they were playing new songs and writing new songs and different songs, and those were, those were referred to as contemporary songs, all right? And so you had the traditional songs and you had the contemporary songs. And the reason they call these things worship wars is because literally, guys, it split churches. Churches literally dissolved over the worship wars. And it didn't matter even necessarily the, the age group of the church. It, it always would, would end in these massive fights. And so what would happen is, and there it still lingers around today, if you ever are, are, are checking out a church, you're going someplace, um, just come here, you don't need a different church. But um, <laughs> if you were to do that, and you might look at their website or wherever they're in, and they'll have something like traditional service. It's usually early, 7.30 a.m. Um, a traditional service, 7.30 a.m. Contemporary service, 9.30 a.m. You know? what, what are they talking about here? That's what they're talking about, guys. That's leftovers from the worship wars. What that is, is that the traditional service, you may have a choir, people in robes, you know, an organ only, and they pull up these books called hymnals. They're paper. They usually are stuck in the pew in the back. And you pull that out and they say, now we will sing hymn 322, you know. And you open it up and they go through and they sing the song that was written in 1762. And, and that's the traditional. And then you jump over to the other side, same building, same church, no hymnals. But you go through this other thing and they're singing all whatever modern stuff, right? But my point is this. Here is a perfect example of ultimately splitting churches Within the, under the same roof. Instead of bringing everybody together with these different preferences of music, which is really hard to do, I understand. I was a worship pastor for a long time. I know how hard this is. But it's still, it's supposed to be one church. We're supposed to be united. And yes, people have different preferences. There are some people here on Sundays, even now, that will say that it was too loud. And other people say it's too quiet. Other people say it's too bright. Other people say it's too dark. Some will say it's too hot. Others will say it's too cold. We're people. That's the way it goes. But what are we supposed to be united on? Our preferences for our music style? The, the clothes we want to wear or don't wear? Like, no. We're to be united around Jesus. All right? All right, here are five points that I want to bring up here quickly, and, um, and we'll get through these pretty fast. Five points for unity, okay? The first one we learned last week, and that is we need to learn to embrace change. We talked about that last week. What did Peter do? He heard God, he received the word from God, and he obeyed the word of God, 
All right? So that's number one. If you want to be able to stay united with other people, other humans, this works in your family as well, by the way, um, we need to learn to embrace change. Because if we all see Jesus clearly, we can't be divided. We won't be divided. We have to prioritize seeing him clearly. In fact, in Philippians 3, I'm not going to put it up there for you. Um, There's too many verses here in in this for me to put them all up there for you. But one of the things that he writes in there is he says, hey, even if you have a disagreement, just pray about it. And God will reveal even that to you. He'll sort it out. He'll work it out. Don't let just a division or a, a difference of opinion split you. Instead, Trust the Lord, look to the Lord, bring it to the Lord between the two of you, and he'll help you sort it out. Secondly, we need to recognize that the devil is always going to attack our unity. All right? If you're not sure of it, there's a real devil. There's a real spiritual battle in the world. All right? Um, The Bible repeatedly, clearly uh, teaches that. Jesus himself had to deal with that. But the devil will always try to attack unity. Why? Because divide and conquer is an effective tactic. It works. And and what's the devil trying to do? Destroy everything that God loves. The body of Christ, me being the church, is one of the primary things that God loves. And so it's a primary uh, point of attack. Uh, In 1 Peter 5, he describes the devil as, as a roaring lion, who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. He wants to rip people into pieces. Furthermore, Jesus even told us that there will be what he described in a parable as weeds in the field. The field being his church, his people. He said there's going to be weeds in the field. People in the church that are actually enemies of the church. He's not talking about people outside of the church. What he says is, hey, yeah, the farmer goes out, they sow the seed, and then when the plants start coming up, they realize, hey, this is in your field, farmer. The workers come to the farmer and say, look, we've got weeds growing up here with the plants we were trying to plant. And what does Jesus actually tell them? He doesn't say, ah, let's just rip it all over, rip it all out and start over. No, here's what he actually says, and this is a representation of the church. He says, actually, just leave it. We're going to let them grow up together. I'll sort it out at the end. That's pretty scary for us. To realize that's the way a church is going to function. There's going to be people from within the church that, are, that, that somehow weasel their way in and come in and create division. Don't freak out when that happens. Jesus already told you it would, all right? And he'll sort it out in the end. All right, so we learn to embrace change. We recognize the devil's always going to attack unity. Third, we deal with one-on-one disagreements as the Bible teaches us. This is very helpful, right? Now, this obviously isn't like big organization division. This is person-to-person division because we also know that's a big part of the community. It's learning to love individuals within the the church at large. It's not about just this idea that, um, yeah, we love God's church as an organization. We also love the people in God's church. And we have to learn to deal with those disagreements like the Bible teaches us. And the way that it teaches us is that we are to handle conflict probably differently than most of us learned growing up at home. In many cases, there are some things that you learned, some habits you've got, some ways of dealing with problems and issues that are not the way the Bible describes it. The way the Bible describes dealing with disagreements is to deal with it quickly, deal with it quietly, with humility and love. And 
that could be a whole teaching on itself, uh, on its own, uh, that we won't get to here today. Uh, one of the ways that Jesus described it in Matthew 7 is he said, hey, when you see something wrong with another believer, another Christian, you see something that they're doing that's not okay, he doesn't say, yell at them. Tell them that they're sinners going to hell. Doesn't say anything like that. The first thing he says is, first, pay attention to yourself. Make sure that you don't have a log stuck in your eye before you're trying to get a little tiny speck out of your brother or sister's eye. He says, deal with it yourself. Why? Because that brings humility to you. Because you realize, wow, I could point out that person's little sin that I saw, but I got this other stuff in my own life that needs to be dealt with. It now gives you a whole different perspective in the way that you interact with someone else. All right? Um, what he also taught us in Matthew 18 is he says, hey, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't, there's a whole other list of things that he goes into. But that's one of the primary things. If somebody in the church has said something to you that's offended you or you feel like you've been sinned against or wronged, the way the Bible teaches us is first, try to quietly go and talk to that person alone. Sort it out. Because a lot of times, it's a misunderstanding. Or it's the kind of thing that doesn't have to blow up and become this big issue between you and that other person. A lot of times it can be dealt with really quickly. You might come to this person and say, hey, you said this to me and it really hurt me. And that person might be like, I'm so sorry. Like, I had a terrible day. I, I've been regretting that since I said it. I shouldn't have done it. Please forgive me. Done. Right? And a lot of times what happens, though, is we, we, there's a misunderstanding. It's happened with me. Um, where there's a misunderstanding and the person won't, has never told you that you did something wrong. And you're like, what happened? What did I do? What did I say? It's not how we're to handle it. Go to that person uh, quickly, quietly, with humility and love. Number four, we also need to keep focused on what matters most. So many church splits and divisions within churches have happened over silly things or minor things. I mean, some people would say, oh, yeah, you know, they're talking about, like, the divinity of Christ. If God, if Jesus was actually God or not, you know, big stuff. That's why they split. No, it's like they didn't like the new carpet color. That kind of stuff. These things should not happen, but they do happen when you focus on the minors instead of focus on what matters most. Titus 3, 9 to 11 says this, but avoid foolish controversies genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. But people get hung up on these things. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Pretty harsh. What Paul is teaching in the church, he's like, look, some people just want to cause problems. And you try to warn that person, you try to work with that person, but if they insist on dealing with whatever it is their little thing is, just tell them, take it somewhere else. There's no place for you here. You're just causing problems. If you want to change what you're doing with all that, great. But otherwise, there's no place here. It's heavy, um, but it, it allows people to stay focused on what matters most. And then five, the, the last one here, and I think this one is important, is... In order to, to have unity, I think one of the inc incredibly important things that we can do is to pray for unity. Especially 
uh, as the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2, especially for those who are tasked with spiritual leadership in the church. Um, the, one of the fastest ways of uh, dividing a church, a group of people, is to attack the leadership of that group. That's always the way things are, right? We're seeing this in wars play out right now where they're going after leaders of particular militaries. Why are they going after leaders? Because if you can go after the leader, a lot of times it will scatter everything else that's underneath it. And so in, in Timothy, one of the, the key components that Paul writes there is he says, hey, make sure you teach the church to pray for the people that are leading the church. It's not this uh, subservience thing going on. It's just the fact that you need strong leadership that is united in order to keep moving forward as a group. Church leaders are not perfect. If I haven't already, think of how many words I speak to you on Sundays. I'm going to probably say something at some point, sometime that's going to offend you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me apologize now. I'm not trying to most of the time. Um, but I, I probably will because I'm fallible. I'm just a person, okay? Um, and, and, and that is a normal part of close relationships with people, though, right? Anybody you've, you've had a close relationship with for a long time, eventually they're going to say something that hurts your feelings, something that makes you mad, you know? Um, it's not just your marriage. It happens in other marriages, too, you know? It's not just you and your best friend, no, it happens. This is, this is how it works. But we're reminded again, it's not my perfection that we're to be united around, right? It's the perfection of Jesus. That's where we're at. But still, we're called to pray um, that all who lead would see clearly and lead faithfully. Okay, now finally as we finish here, um, what then is the result of a united, a united church, a unified church? We're not getting to all that part yet um, here today. I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of other verses for you in Acts 11. I wanted to, but I knew I didn't have time. What is the result of a unified church? Two things. Number one is a united church is a church that expresses and shows love. Love is what is seen. Uh, The world begins to recognize our love for one another despite our differences. Right now, when anybody looks around at the world, you're like, nobody can get along. Everybody hates everybody. This is, it is, this is a dog-eat-dog world, and I am on my own. Right? People are scared to, oh, I don't know if I should write that, or I should comment on that, or I should like this or that, because it's going to blow up. And then there's other people that they say, I don't care. Nobody loves me anyway. I'm just going to say whatever I want. <laughs> Um, And that's all going on, and so all that's happening. But think about this. Think of the contrast of what it would be like when people from outside the church look in at the church, and what they see is unity, and they see love, and they see people actually getting along even though they're different sorts of people. That would be incredible, right? That's the way it's supposed to be. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He didn't say it's the clothes you wear, it's the way you talk, it's how much money you make. It's no, none of that stuff. He said the reason they're going to know that you're my disciples is because you have love for one another, which is completely different than the world around us. That's what why the Bible also says in Colossians 3:12 to 14, put on then 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. One of the things that happens sometimes in church leadership that no one looks forward to, I don't anyway as a pastor, is sometimes I'm asked to help sort things out with people. And most of the time, what that ultimately comes down to is is me quoting verses like this. To say, look, you're a Christian, they're a Christian. They said this, you said this, but here's what this is telling us. What this is telling us is we have to forgive. And so the word that's given here is you've got to forgive. You've got to put on love. Even if you don't feel like it, choose to forgive and choose to love because that's what's going to bind you together in perfect harmony. And love is attractive. We might have differences in opinion. We might have differences even in non-essential elements of doctrine. Okay? But we must love one another. That doesn't move. And it deeply affects, then, our mission as Christians. John Piper said, I don't think the world stumbles mainly over doctrinal disagreement among Christians. It stumbles mainly over the way we treat each other in the light of those disagreements. And ultimately what it leads to is then, if we are united as a church, we then can accomplish the mission that Jesus has given us. We don't want to be the reason that a non-believer won't come to faith. And when we're fighting with each other and we're dividing and splitting and calling each other names, that is an obstacle for the outside world. Because the outside world looks in on the church and when they see that, they're like, what's the difference? Is this Congress or is this a church? Doesn't matter. It should matter. There should be a very different view when they look in at the church. We want to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus. We want to be the people that are showing the love of Christ. Not because we're such amazing people, but because of the amazing one that indwells us. And a church that exists in harmony will be a powerful force in the world. And I know it's not always easy, but it's what we're called to pursue. And it'll enable us to accomplish the mission that Jesus has given his church. And it starts with just you and me. It starts with us committing ourselves to be united, to work through issues as they come up, and continue to draw the church together. Amen? Amen. Pray with me here. Father, I thank you for your word here today. And, um, and I pray that that's what it is, Lord, that, that we would be able to uh, recognize the word that you are speaking to us today. And I believe that you desire that the church would be united that we would be united around Jesus. Yeah, there, we'll have some different opinions, we'll have some different preferences, uh, but, but Lord, if we can agree on one thing, let us agree that we're going to follow Jesus, that we're going to choose to devote ourselves to him and what he has for our lives. And Lord, I just ask that as a church, you would enable us to work through the things that come up in, in the, the best way possible. 
no matter what that might be. And Lord, we pray that you would bring uh, just a spirit of unity and strength among us. And, uh, and God, I, I just pray also today for uh, unity to, to seep into every part of uh, every relationship that, that we all have. Uh, Lord, today I want to pray for marriages. Maybe there's some marriages here today that are, have been struggling with unity and struggling to be united. And these principles still work there as well. And so, God, I pray that today you would uh, draw people together in that way. I pray that you would allow people to forgive one another, that they'd be able to put on that compassionate heart, that they'd be patient with one another, and be willing to embrace the change that you want to make in that relationship. I pray, Lord, for uh, maybe extended family relationships. Maybe there's a brother or sister or aunt or uncle or nephew or niece or um, son or daughter Um, grandparent, whatever it is, if there's division there, Lord, I pray that you would do a healing, that you would do a work in us to aim for unity, to focus our hearts to be united. And and Lord, uh, allow us as, as far as we can extend ourselves, because I know that in those cases, we're not always dealing with other Christians. We're not always dealing with other believers. But as far as it depends on us, Lord, may we live peaceably with one another. That's what we desire to do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would sink this into our hearts and our minds today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.